there's a perception amongst providers that if they have this conversation, it's going to be adversarial or tense, and that will end in a, a bad outcome. And I know one, several of the physicians we've spoken with, they're concerned with turning the patient away, and they'll end up getting a rotten review on the internet. So they will already have a bad problem, and it'll be made worse by a nasty review on the internet or you know, a lot of back and forth, ugly text messages. Now, the re they're happy to not perform the procedure on the patient, so they're doing the right thing, meaning that they're not taking the bait, they're not performing an unnecessary procedure on the patient who will clearly be dissatisfied, but they still feel in their heart of hearts there's gonna be tension and an ugly outcome. What, if, what have you actually noticed when you bring this up to patients? Is there an adversarial relationship that begins or can it be navigated in such a way that everybody benefits uh, from the conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the chances of them writing you a bad review if you did do treatment are so great and now you actually could be considered guilty because you did treat someone, they had um, in their perception a negative result. I would much rather have a, a negative review for something where this provider refused to see me Right. versus this provider saw me and now my face is disfigured. So if you have to look at that uh, potential as well, more than likely they will write a review either way. Um, so we have to look at what that review looks like. But if you, um, even in the in the study, we had zero uh, negative fallout. I and mean, we had a, one or two patients that kind of walked out unhappy and, you know, huffed away. But if these patients know in their heart of hearts they're not emotionally healthy, my, my guess is they're gonna be grateful. In my own personal experience, I had several patients start crying and tell me thank you for even discussing this with them, that they felt like maybe it was getting out of control and they weren't sure what to do with it next. So they came here thinking that maybe I could help, but that they were so grateful that I would take that. I mean, I might I might have had two or three one hour consults with these people um, without getting paid. And, and so to that, they're just actually really grateful that I would take the time and spend the treat, the time I was going to treat them with right. a discussion time and then a referral. And I, I happen to know that most or several of my patients that I've referred have actually sought out treatment, um, with a therapist for this. And we're really, really grateful that I took the time to do that. So I just would encourage any provider to not use that as a reason because, the conversation is going to happen where they're going to be unhappy and mad at you either way, whether you treat them or whether you don't. And so it's just better to have that conversation, not treat them, and then be on your way with your next patient that hopefully you can meet their expectations. This is a detail, and I'm sure every practice will be different, but it sounds like in the situation you just described, you chose not to charge them for your time. I mean, in a sense, yeah. you made a diagnosis of them, but you gave them a gift. You basically said, I'm giving you what I think is a tentative diagnosis. Number two, I'm going to give you the gift of, of pointing you in a direction of somebody that I think can help you. And number three, here's the gift. This one's on me. I, I wish mm -hmm. you well. 
What yeah, are your thoughts in terms of charging? Absolutely. Or not I think charging? if you if you charge for that, you, you know, you are definitely going to have some backlash. And and here's the thing: I might have spent one hour with them, but I didn't spend 15 to 20 hours with them afterwards <laughs> debating about how this result does look good. And let me oh, show yes. you the pictures, and let me do this, and all the text messages that you mentioned earlier. I saved myself 10 hours by spending that one hour. So you have yeah, to actually, look at it that way. Actually, with the math that you just described, you actually save yourself 19 hours. So that's exactly. even better. Yeah, that's what I call an amazing return on one's investment. Right, right. Yep. Mm -hmm. So how do these patients do once they seek mental health treatment and they're under the care of a psychologist, psychiatrist? How do they ultimately do? And can they become candidates to come back to the practice and actually get procedures if they're under the care uh, of a mental health profession. Yeah, I think they certainly can. I haven't experienced anyone come back um, and get treatment, which is completely fine to me, but I think it's very reasonable to think that someone could um, because, you know, sometimes it's, it's that one particular flaw. Let's say it's their nose, which is a high trigger point for people. Um, but they, you know, want to come in and get a little bit of lift in their uh, cheek or their under eyes or, or maybe just a little bit of enhancement in their lip, and that's not even related to the area that is of such concern. Um, and so, you know, it's not a one and done kind of write it off 100%. There are different cases for sure. And so if they were under the care of a psychiatrist or psychologist and they said they approved them to get treatment, I would love a letter from them saying, you know, right. we're working on this. This is really getting better. It seems really more focused towards their hair loss or their nose or whatever. So I am completely fine if you want to try treating in another area. Um, and I just, I think that would be a really great situation. I just haven't come across it yet, but it's We've bound to happen. Well, we've had several doctors, and these were male patients who had an issue, and the doctor said, I'm going to need you to be cleared by um, psychologist, mm -hmm. psychiatrist. And what what they were saying was, I'm not saying not ever, I'm just mm -hmm. saying not now. Just mm -hmm. I'm just saying not now. And mm -hmm. the beauty of doing that, it does leave the door open. It's an easier conversation. And to the extent the procedure is going to be done at some point down the road. It's multidisciplinary. It's done with mm -hmm. some handholding and there's an off ramp down the road with the healthcare a mental health professional if need mm -hmm. be. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think that would be a really great ideal way to, to work with it for sure. So I know that your practice focuses mostly on women, but uh, body dysmorphic disorder or mental illness is not the province of uh, one single gender. I know that men, also can have this condition, in particular, um, plastic surgeons that do rhinoplasties, mm -hmm. uh, as one example, have, I'm blanking on the name, Simon, but I can't remember what Simon stands for, but it's a personality profile that ultimately means that the patient is going to have um, extremely high expectations and almost certainly are never going to be met. Do you, any comments or thoughts about um, men and mental health and the types of challenges that aesthetic providers uh, may have? You know, um, so the incidence in the clinical aesthetic setting from male to females is three to one. So three females to one male. Um, in the community at large, it's actually one to one. And I think the the discrepancy, number one, we have a lot more females than males in our practice. You know, probably 95 to 98 percent of our practice is female. And that's pretty, pretty standard um, 
na nationwide. Um, in the community, there's there's also an element of muscle dys dysmorphia disorder, which is a whole other um, subcategory of OCD for males that's really really actually quite prevalent um, if you look up that disorder as well. But uh, for males, typically it, they're, they're not as often in the clinic. And if so, they come a little bit more reluctantly. It's usually their wife that says, oh, why don't you get some Botox too and all of that. But on the flip side, if they are a regular patient um, and they come on their own, um, you know, volition, then mm -hmm. it is possible that they could be at a higher rate because as a general rule, and I'm stereotyping here, but males are generally not as concerned with aging as females. So if someone did come in as a male that was very concerned with something, um, it is potentially, you know, something that we still would need to screen and maybe even more so because it's so powerful for them, it would cause them to come into a clinic. So um, I just, I just kind of treat them both the same and see how they follow up because uh, the, the screening is actually pretty gender fluid. It's not specific necessarily. We have something about masculinity and about femininity, but it's more about, you know, I want to look tired or I don't want to look tired. Or I want to look lifted and that kind of thing. So I think it spans both genders. The reason I bring it up is because the, the challenges associated with dissatisfaction or mismanaged expectations may be different for both sexes. So for mm -hmm. example, an unhappy uh, female patient may write back and forth, nasty emails, nasty text mm -hmm. messages, horrible mm -hmm. online review, but men more broadly have a, pro a greater propensity towards violence mm -hmm. um, or, or threats, threats of physical violence. And mm -hmm. uh, it's not unheard of in the past to have an unhappy patient actually take it out on the provider or they show mm -hmm. up the police have to come and on occasion um, shots are fired from a gun or a knife. I mean, these this is newsworthy, but on the other hand, it's not particularly surprising in our country, particularly given how how armed our population is. So um, I bring it up. I, I bring this up broadly in the hopes of identifying everyone who may be a challenge, but perhaps you may need extra special attention for the male patient where this can morph into violence. Yeah, well, I think uh, there are actually four documented cases of murder um, for, for from patients to their plastic surgeons, four, four documented uh, as of whenever this article was published. There's definitely an increased risk for retaliation um, including violence. They, if it's a true body dysmorphic disorder diagnosis and you're not giving them what they see as their last hope, you can see where it can escalate really quickly because this is their last attempt to fix this. And if you say no, or it's, you're kind of in a rock and hard place because if you say no, they're going to, they have a heightened risk for suicide. Actually, their completion rate for suicide is a lot higher than average um, completion rate. So they high risk and a higher completion rate, but also, so you're saying no to their last hope, which can increase their um, uh, retaliation rate. But also if you do bring them on as a patient and they're not satisfied and remember that 98% of dissatisfaction rate, uh, now, again, they could come after you for that as well. So either way, you're kind of in a rock and a hard place. But I think if you can de-escalate it in a way that seems very clinical in the beginning and prevent seeing them to, to start with, you're at a better place um, than if you would try to 
uh, improve their issue and then it doesn't, it's not successful and now you're really in trouble. Let's segue briefly into occasional pieces of language that um, a post-op or post-procedure patient will send to a practice where we'll say, um, I'm unhappy with the outcome. This is a horrible result. I don't think I can go on living. You mm -hmm. ruined my life. Mm -hmm. And there's subtext in there that they may take their life. And the mm -hmm. practice is going, I don't know how serious this is. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not really mm -hmm. trained to mm -hmm. do this. And on the one hand, you you don't want to you don't want to make a mistake. You want to err on the side of caution, but you don't want to overreact. So there's a, mm -hmm. a balancing act when you see this type of language. And I'm com comparing and contrasting with an obvious suicide threat, which is I have a a gun. I plan on taking my life tonight. You know, where there's a concrete plan with the with the methodology and the objects to to accomplish that. Any, any, I mean, it, it may be such an uncommon thing in your practice, but I know broadly, um, we we get phone calls periodically asking me to decipher a a cryptic message. Um, I don't even have the background uh, related to how this message developed, but um, I think sometimes those are the only tools we have, and sometimes my recommendation is to overreact. That would mm -hmm. be my natural tendency is to err on the side of caution. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't had that happen. I have had um, a patient who, before I was screening, came through um, and, you know, when reviewing the results, which were exactly what you said in the beginning, beautiful results, any colleague would say, wow, this is fantastic, um, actually wrote a review that it was uh, disfiguring. So those are the, the, the type of hyperbole that they use in their reviews or in their um, comments when you review the images with them. It's disfiguring. I, you know, I'm, you know, ruined and all of these kind of words is pretty clear indication that they have um, some perception disorders like this. But uh, on the line of suicide, I mean, as a, as a practitioner, we're, we're mandated reporters. So if you get enough information where you feel like this is something that could potentially come from that, I mean, you've got to report that. And just statistically, uh, their completed suicide rate is 37 times higher than the general population. They're also at risk for self injections, which is another huge topic, or self-surgeries, if they're not getting what they want, they're at risk for that. But remember, if you can kind of screen them beforehand, that's off your plate. If Once you take them in as a patient, now you are responsible for their health, regardless of where they're at. Um, but they, these patients have a, a, a history of suicide attempt at 22%. Um, and of course, the delusional thoughts at almost 40% comorbidity of delusional thoughts. It is a perception disorder. So it's a big deal. Um, and I just wanted to bring up to the fact that we see these patients on a spectrum. I mean, there are some that are at risk for it. There are some that are completely in the throes of it. There are some that are recovering from it. Um, we're talking about, of course, the extremes here, but, um, along the lines, you constantly need to be looking out for this, even if you've taken a patient on who didn't screen positive in the beginning, now start seeing the, the, the highs that they get from these types of treatments, the endorphin lift, and all of a sudden they become dysmorphic with this. So that happens too. So there's a continuum of screening with these patients um, and what you need to do to, to be on top of their mental health. 
Well, timing is everything. It may very well be that the screening tool is done at a time when they're not experiencing any of these types of symptoms or, or feelings. You bring them in, you start doing it, but lo and behold, a year down the road, they show back up mm-hmm. and something's changed. Mm-hmm. Something has changed. You just need to be attentive to it, that this is not a one and done uh, type of um, type of checklist. It's a type mm-hmm. of thing where in your brain, you just need to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. That it, Just because the, the checklist is negative up front, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that this person is free and clear for the rest of their life. And if you pick up on any of these hints that there's a problem, uh, you should act on it. It doesn't mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the same as false positives and false negatives. This right. is a, it's a statistical tool designed to look at entire population, but every Every day is a new day. Every year mm-hmm. is a new year. Yep. And development can happen later in that relationship as well. And in fact, it's interesting that the onset is, is prior to 18 years old. At 70% is prior to 18, but the diagnosis isn't until average age of 34. So there's a big wow. gap in there between 17 and 34 where they're just hanging out in the world looking for satisfaction in other ways, whether it be drugs, whether it be, uh, I don't know, but they finally find their way into a clinic like ours. And then now they're around that age of our average patient between 30s and 40s. And and now it's up to us to kind of find these things. And as I mentioned, sometimes they may not have screened positive in the beginning, but then as things go. Um, so we do a yearly H&P anyway. And so it's very reasonable to continue to ask about their mental health every year, especially if we see some of these red flags start to pick up. And and I think that conversation is a lot easier than a patient you don't have rapport with. You can just say, you know, Sally, I'm, I'm noticing that this is becoming really important to you. It seems like you're in here every couple of months. It seems like you're trying to fix something that I'm not able to fix. You know, what's going on here? Let's just talk about this. Where are you feeling about this? And I've had conversations like that. That's actually more common than trying to screen them in the beginning because you you have that relationship and and then you know they they tell you a little bit more about their mental health and what's going on with them emotionally and then you can just say you know what Sally I think we need to take a pause here I, I think that this is becoming a little bit out of control you're trying to solve a problem with my needle or my Botox or my filler that I'm not going to be able to solve for you let's take a mental health break here from injectables and let's see what else is going on with you emotionally I mean you're dealing with women whose you know husbands have cheated on them or you know, they're, they're feeling uncomfortable about their bodies or their faces because, you know, I don't know, there's just a lot of emotional stuff and we really need to take that in as a, as a whole with our patients all the time, not just at the beginning. I think when patients come in and they expect that a particular procedure is going to fix a failing marriage Mm -hmm. or get them a new job because they hate their old job, the answer is no, it's not mm-hmm. going to help that. It's going to help around the edges in terms mm-hmm. of making you feel better. And I noticed in your screening tool, a lot of the words are er, like healthy er, looks mm-hmm. er. There's a right. Y at the end, as opposed to, you know, the nouns, perfect or perfection. Right. It's kind of uh, interesting. You know, one of the things that, um, we have not touched on is the legal world when lawyers get involved mm-hmm. and informed consent was something that you touched on in in the article which mm-hmm. is if you truly have a psychiatric condition and you're aware of it and you still carry on and do the procedure in spite of that 
did they actually have informed consent? Were they able to make a good decision as mm -hmm. to the risk benefits and options? And clearly, um, arguments have been made by clever attorneys that their patient was in no way able to make this decision. And in a sense, you've committed a battery. You've you've operated or performed a procedure on somebody who didn't have the capacity to mm -hmm. make this decision. And so regardless of how good the procedure was, but just by doing the procedure, you didn't have the consent or permission to do it. Any thoughts or comments uh, on that? No, I, I completely agree with you. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of scanning my notes here, but I, I put that in one of my courses as far as like, you could potentially be at fault for that. Exactly. If you know someone or you suspect someone has a mental illness that would be a contraindication to your treatment and you continue to do that treatment and we've seen this in the news you know plastic surgeons that just go farther and farther and farther um are they liable are they culpable for their decisions i mean i would argue in a, in a court of peers you know potentially yes that you continue to treat someone that is um not getting the treatment for the right course or for the right reasons and you continue to do that for a financial gain are you responsible? Are you doing the best thing for the patient? And I mean, don't have me on that jury because I could definitely <laughs> wouldn't help you out on that. You, you already sound like the plaintiff's attorney. I thought you were doing an excellent job uh, delivering your closing statement there. Yeah, Let's, I uh, do. We, I do think so. Yeah. So we've got a little bit of time left. I just want to uh, switch gears and talk about your role in, term, in terms of being a point person to listen to phone calls when a provider has a complication, because mm -hmm. I think that's a very useful resource. Um, certainly when everything's hitting the fan and there are unexpected complications, people people will turn to familiar providers to, to see how they would treat something. But by becoming a repository uh, of so many of these complications, not that these are your complications or not, but you listen to a lot of different stories, you have a broader perspective than I think an individual uh, provider may have. It's more than just an anecdotal fix here and there, but it's and it's holistic. It's not just how I would fix the medical issue, but how to communicate it, how to think about remediation, how to think about it globally to solve the larger problem, which is not just what's in front of you, but how to prevent damage to the practice. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples that come to mind in terms of, uh, I mean, some of these complications can be horrific. For example, um, uh, filler injection, which turns into uh, retinal embolus and blindness. I mean, that to me is one of the worst things that can happen. You're, mm -hmm. You've got an entirely elective procedure, mm -hmm. unnecessary. Uh, certainly medically unnecessary, a patient comes mm -hmm. in there and maybe the conversation about the risk uh, was limited or minimal and then soon after they can't see or maybe two days later they realize they can't see mm -hmm. and they, they just thought it would go away. Now what? I, so again, just give us an idea of the types of conversations you have. They may be more aesthetic, they may be more medical or they may be combination of all. Yeah, as a complication consultant for Allergan or AbbVie, which is the largest pharmaceutical company in our space, um, we're dealing with uh, more of the medical side, but what I always like to incorporate in any one of my trainings is how do you deal with it on the business side too. Like what, mm -hmm. what should you be doing? You should not be charging for this visit. You should call this patient every single day. You should make sure that you are 
mitigating negative outcomes from this. And that that always is what we talk about with, you know, um, lawsuits and, and that type of thing is if you are hand holding this patient through in this entire process, the chances of that happening are going to go down dramatically. But I mean, more than that, like you just need to do that as a provider. That's just a, a basic bare minimum of your job. Um, but as far as like you're blind, I mean, th those cases are extremely rare. I just want to emphasize for those listening. And, and I was looking right. for the statistic, but I think it's like, yeah. I, I don't know, I could be this wrong. One in 50,000. I mean, it's 500,000. It's very, very rare. Um, but if they're calling me, that's a problem because it's a process. You have to go through like a process. You have to call your rep. You got to call the MSL, their medical science liaison, and then they put you in touch with a clinician. And, and vision loss is definitely a timed um, complication, so they need to be calling an ophthalmologist at that point. Uh, but typically, I'm dealing with you know the. The, the swelling that maybe just won't go away after a couple of months or um, a nodule has formed after a couple of months. And, and so I give them the, the medical prescriptive to kind of treat that on the medical side, but then also how do you handle it with a patient? And, and that to me is, it should be innate as a aesthetic provider, but not always is the case. People ask me, you know, well, should I charge them for this visit? And I'm like, no, no, you can't. This is something that you could have avoided or should have avoided. This is cost of doing business. So no, absolutely not. So I guess there's a little bit of both in that component. We, we had on the podcast not too long ago, a critical care specialist. I think he's a pediatric critical care doctor in Miami. His name is Tony Orsini, who teaches mm -hmm. a class called how to deliver bad news. And mm -hmm. he's a communication specialist dealing with challenging medical situations. And his comment is it's all in the delivery, how you mm -hmm. say it is as important as what you say. They're both important. But as Maya Angelou once said, people will forget what you said, but they never will forget how you made them feel. Mm. And that part of that is tone. Part of that is just connecting with them as a human. How would you want to be treated if you were on the receiving end of that particular uh, complication? Yeah, and that stuff is very challenging to teach, but I'd love to listen to that podcast because it, it is a very important part of aesthetic medicine. It's very much customer centric. And oftentimes people who kind of find themselves into aesthetic medicine are more trained on the medical side and they forget mm -hmm. that gap between the two and how important it is to be patient centric, customer service oriented and not always just cut and dry medical. Um, it's, it's a totally different demographic. Like we've mentioned, the patients are a little bit more emotionally um, invested in you and your practice and in their face. And, and it, it's very reasonable that we have to treat these patients differently than our, our medical patients. Well, it's pretty cool uh, with what Dr. Sini said is that he believes many of these communication skills can be taught. And there's a feedback loop to see, well, how'd I do? He's got a, a class where he works with uh, models or, or paid actors, and mm -hmm. you ultimately go through different vignettes, different scenarios where are delivering bad news, and then they give you feedback, and ultimately you graduate from this uh, short course. But uh, I think just having resources like him out there, having resources like you out there is extremely uh, reassuring to uh, mm -hmm. providers that are, that are new to the space and also people who have been out there uh, for quite a while. Right, yeah, and I do love to include mock mock situations in my training because I, I do think that all most providers just need to have some language to say. They just give me some words and I can put them in my own phrasing and my own 
um, head, but just give me something to go on. Otherwise, they just don't know how to say anything, you know, the way that would be the most customer centric or patient facing. Leslie, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom today. Um, you've certainly made my life a lot easier because I get <laughs> these calls all the time. And when I for, when I hear the words, I did a perfect job and they're unhappy, I immediately start thinking about mental illness. And mm -hmm. what's fascinating is that I don't think providers are really thinking about it, but it it's a light bulb that goes off in their head. I'm saying you're using a surgical tool to treat a mental illness. It will never mm -hmm. work. And in mm -hmm. fact, you're more likely than not to make it worse. It, it's a bit of a relief to hear that, but by then they have already done the job, but it doesn't mean they can't learn for the future. So I think the whole notion of a screening tool, extremely valuable. We, we will post a link uh, in the show notes so people can get access to it. Leslie, how do people get in touch with you? Um, I, 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 you're in such demand. I, I'm cautious about <laughs> just figuring out how to uh, communicate this without making your life unbearably more difficult. So, um, so feel free um. to... Um, to say yes or no to that. Yeah, no, I, I'm very uh, approachable, very reachable. I, I'm, I'm an educator, so I'd love to educate. I'm involved in, in a lot of panels and, and conversations on, on podium. And so definitely reach out to us. My Instagram is Injectability Beauty. Um, we can DM, we have emails, uh, info at injectabilityinstitute.com. Um, and we will definitely, um, be able to help you out if you have questions. We have a ton of resources for this. And I even have a, a free video that I talk about the new patient experience. So we have a lot of options. Any final thoughts before we part ways here? No, I just really appreciate you bringing this up. And, and just, I know you have a, a wide audience as far as practitioners and patients alike. And and I just, I guess I want to reiterate that it's not that I'm, I'm saying these people are horrible and let's not see them and all that. It's just, let's recognize where we can help and where we can't and just be honest with ourselves. And, and there are some cases where, you know, I, I do think it is possible. We just need to make sure they have the right expectations. And so we teach a whole class on that too, meeting patients' expectations and, in just with healthy, emotionally healthy patients, it's still an issue. So it doesn't mean that you, you know, have a psych psychological disorder if you haven't been happy with your injectables. That's not what we're saying. It's going to be unreasonable um, amount of dissatisfaction for something that, if was looked at objectively, um, was a great outcome. So that's, I guess, why I think the before and after images are really important too. Thanks so much for not only describing the problem but also offering a solution. We appreciate yeah. it. My pleasure. Okay. Nice chatting with you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now we wanna protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague, and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, 
write to us at info news, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.